Good morning, Gateway. Okay. All right. Before I say a thing uh, or anything more, let me pray for us. Father, what a privilege it is to be here, to be called your child. Lord, to be uh, under the hearing of your word that changes lives. Lord, we uh, delve into your word now and ask that you would indeed do just that, that you would change us, that you would make us look more like Christ, that you would cause us to think and feel and act and reason as Christ, and Lord, that we would leave here changed, looking more like Christ, and uh, living more effectively for the cause of Christ. So Lord, now, as we approach your word, help us to give it the respect that it demands, the honor that it demands, and to be changed by it. And we thank you for the privilege in doing so, in Christ's name, amen. If you would, please get out your copy of the scriptures. Uh, I would ask that everybody follow along in uh, the written word as I speak it. Turn to Jude, I would say chapter one, but there is only one chapter. Uh, the way you get there is go to the very last book of Revelation and turn left. Now, I came to Christ in 1984 during the spring break of my senior year in high school. Uh, shortly after that, I headed off to college to begin my liberal arts degree in psychology. I was fired up about my faith, and I couldn't wait to get to college and find other believers because there really weren't any in my high school that I knew of. Much to my elation, I found out that I could sign up for religion classes that centered around Christ in the Bible. Uh, by the way, this was a state university in Ohio. But then, much to my dismay, uh, the focus of those classes was really on dismantling Christianity and the faith of anyone who would dare to proclaim Christ. So even though it appeared to me to be Christ-centered, it was Christ-centered, but in the wrong way. This was my first wake-up call. In my less than one-year-old naivete, I thought that if, I called it, if it called itself Christian, then it was truly Christian. Who would lie about that? Well, I learned very quickly that at least professors and universities would. My faith survived that round, and God actually used it to teach me wisdom and Christian apologetics that would serve me to this day in my walk with Christ. Shortly after this revelation, though, I ran into another one that was even more shocking. While at college, I became very active in a campus ministry and chose to go on a missions trip with them to Kenya. I came home to, to raise support for that trip and went to speak with my pastor about it. Having been raised in church all my life and having had the same pastor for years, I thought that he would be excited that I had come to Christ and was now living for the gospel. I was stopped dead in my tracks, though, when I met him in his office, and he proceeded to rebuke me for what I was doing. My pastor began to make great efforts to dismantle the true gospel that I now ascribe to and to try to convince me of a false gospel that I never even knew he ascribed to. He told me that everyone went to heaven, 
that salvation was granted to everyone unless they disearned it, and that the Bible was full of mistakes and misinterpretations. That's coming from my pastor. It was one thing for me to accept that a secular institution like my university would deny biblical truth and seek to tear me away from a sound following of Christ. It was another thing yet to accept it from my own pastor. Eventually, I would come to realize that although highly disappointing, it should not necessarily be surprising. Jesus and the apostles all warned of it. They warned of false teachers and said that they would be inside the church. What I want to do this morning is, is take us to the book of Jude and see uh, what he has to say about this matter so that we are not caught off guard, so that we can protect our families and our churches, and so that we can develop the discernment in identifying false teachers and false teachings in order to be effective defenders of the truth. Now, by the way, we at uh, Grace Christian Academy, where I'm the headmaster, are gradually memorizing the entire book of Jude. So by the end of June, they should have this entire book committed to memory. Um, so let's start with verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude begins his letter in a very interesting way. He's a half-brother of Jesus, biologically, and he's also a brother of James. He has no reservation in associating with his biological relationship with James and calling him a brother, but notice how he articulates his relationship to Jesus. He doesn't mention brother at all. Rather than call himself a brother, he calls himself a servant, which we're going to see is really an understatement. Uh, a more fitting translation for this is a slave. There are a variety of terms used in the scriptures which we translate into servant when we translate it into the English. One term may refer, though, to a sort of butler, another to a worker. But the one that's used here is the only one that can rightly be translated into slave, as it refers to the lowest of the servants, one who is bound to serve completely at the master's will and to do so for life. Where Jude could have proudly referred to himself as the brother of Jesus and then taken advantage of all the perks and privileges that would have gone with that, he instead humbly refers to himself as a lowly slave, implying that his will is no longer his but that of his master's, ready to do not his own bidding but that of the Lord's for the rest of his life. It will serve us well to consider how Jude's posture towards Christ is significant to us today and how it is relevant to the matters he's going to address further in his letter. One of the most subtle but sinister trends that we can point to in the church today is the shrinking of and diminishing value of God. We're making God smaller and we're making man bigger. Unlike Jude's perception of himself as a slave to Christ, we too often in our modern church communities refer to God as the man upstairs, the big guy, or my homeboy. As alleged Christians, we use the words God and Jesus Christ as exclamations and include the Lord in jokes we tell. I expect that from the pagans. We should not hear that from the believers. This deserves some attention and clarification, though. When the Lord tells us not to use the Lord's name in vain because none will be held innocent in doing so, 
His concern is not the articulation of a particular word as if it had special powers. It's not an incantation. Rather, his concern is the heart that produces the word. The heart that can uh, use God's name as a curse word or as an exclamation or as a joke is a heart that has not grasped the immense value and thus sacredness of the one to whom the name belongs. The heart that does grasp this is convicted and repulsed to hear it or to say it in any way that mistreats God's name and will refrain from doing so out of personal reverence. The one who proclaims God's name preceded by or preceded by oh my is not in danger because they have articulated certain words. Rather, they are in danger because their heart does not reflect the reverence for God that is also necessary for salvation. I'm not God's homeboy. <laughs> I'm his slave. So why is this so important to grasp in Jude's letter? Because Jude is going to identify those who have gone astray because they do not take God's word seriously. They are sloppy with the scriptures because they are sloppy with God. Jude is going to warn about them because they deviate from the truth and they lead others down paths to destruction. They deviate from the truth because they don't hold the truth as sacred. They don't hold the truth as sacred because they have at least diminished God to some degree and don't hold him as sacred. Before we identify them, though, uh, let's identify to whom this letter is written. That is to those who are, what the word says, called. This begins a pattern that you will see in Jude's writing, a pattern that I believe Jude uses to emphasize God's trinity and for good reason. Those who are called are called by a caller, one who sounds an invitation that the one who is called hears. How are the called actually called? In John 16, we are told that our calling begins when, now catch this part because this is the trend, or this is the pattern that we'll see in Jude's writing. When the Holy Spirit initially convicts us of sin and of righteousness, we are then told that the Spirit of truth will guide us in all truth. This is not an audible calling that registers through the ears, but rather a spiritual call that is registered at the core of our beating, being, what, the call, or what we call the heart or the gut, what the Bible identifies as the seat of convictions. Notice now that those who are called, which we know to be done by the Spirit, are also, number two, beloved in God the Father, and number three, kept for Jesus Christ. This is the pattern. This is actually the second stanza in what I like to refer to as the Judaic waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Jesus, um, actually, called by the Spirit uh, is one, beloved by the Father, number two, kept for the Son. But then the third stanza here says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Here, Jude is not just saying these spiritual words to be nice and specific words chosen are not just randomly chosen from a long list of spiritually sounding words. This is done with intention. These three are chosen for a purpose that will become very relevant and needed for the task that Jude is about to, to call us to or to assign. 
He begins this stanza with wording that we translate into may. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And it indicates that he is pronouncing his blessing, not just as a blessing, but also as a prayer. He is intentionally beseeching God to bestow an extra dose of each of these three things on these believers because they're about to need them to, uh, to do what they're going to be called to do. Jude is about to warn his listeners about false teachers who are in the church and give these listeners the charge to do battle with them. And in so doing, they're going to need an extra dose of these three things. For this task, they will need, number one, mercy. They will need to experientially know the mercy shown to them so that they may in turn extend the same to those who are belligerent towards the gospel. As they fight to defend and perpetuate the truth, they will need to manifest God's mercy lest they become merciless, offensive, obnoxious, or even violent. For this task, they will also need patience. God's peace, peace that is supernaturally induced and supernatural in nature. This is patience that exists in spite of circumstances that are anything but peaceful. This is peace that results from the Lord's divine intervention in the believer's life rather than result, resulting from a tranquil setting. When we pray for God's peace, we often believe that God will bring about that peace by changing our circumstances. That is not necessarily biblical peace. The peace that we see in the scripture that is spiritual, that is supernatural, is induced regardless of our circumstances. For this task, they will also thirdly need love. They will need patience and kindness and self-control and all the other manifestations of agape love as they protect God's people and as they confront those who seek to do them harm. Jude prays for these three things, not to be added to them, but to be multiplied to them. This is where my math teacher comes out. Multiplication produces a product much quicker and much larger than addition does. And that's exactly what Jude's praying for. Upon completing these three stanzas, each with three items, the middle stanza contains the Trinity itself. Jude, uh, Jude then states the purpose of his letter. And that's where we get into verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude states that his original intent in writing to the audience, this audience of believers was to talk about their common salvation, which he was very excited and eager to do. But he changes his mind to address what he deems as a much more urgent matter. It may not necessarily be more important, but it is much more urgent. In order for us to fully understand what Jude writes next in verse 4 and beyond, we must first understand what he means by this common salvation. First of all, it is common, identify, uh, identical for all who have it. The salvation that Jude has is the same salvation that Peter has, is the same salvation that Moses has, is the same salvation that a Jew who is saved has, is the same salvation that a Gentile who is saved has. It's all the same. Salvation is not obtained one way for one people group and another way for a different people group. 
nor is it obtained one way at one point in time that, it, that is different from another way at a different point in time. It's always by faith, by grace, by Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It's not a result of works that none can boast. I regularly ask people, if God were to ask you why should I let you into heaven, how would you answer him? One guy may say, I never robbed or murdered anyone or did anything really bad. I'm basically a good person. Another may say, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've heard that one a million times. And yet another one I hear frequently is, I regularly go to church, or I'm a member of this church, or I'm a member of that church. Grace doesn't fit into any of that. Grace means unmerited favor, means a free gift. If I give you something for it, it's no longer free. It becomes a purchased commodity. God said you are saved not by a purchased commodity, but by grace. It is something you cannot earn either by currency or by labor. You cannot purchase it. God says for by grace, by a free gift that you cannot earn because it is given to you by the only one who has it to give, you have been saved, but saved from what? Well, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory or the perfect standard of God. And Romans 6.23 gives us the so what? That the wages of sin that we've all committed is death. Now, eventually that'll translate into a physical death, but immediately it translates into a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. So, by God's free gift and not your own effort, you have been saved from an eternal death penalty through faith. Is it my faith, then, that saves me? No. It is Christ's death on the cross that saves me. It is my faith, however, by which I trust this promise from God, rather than trying to earn it by my actions. It couldn't be any clearer from the scriptures that it is not yourself and it is not by works. In fact, it is not by anything you can do for which you would then be able to give yourself credit. It is totally God's effort so that none of us can boast. We can't boast that we were smart enough, that we were wise enough, that we were moral enough, that we were religious enough. I may be each of those things in comparison to the next guy, but it doesn't matter because none of those things are what God demands in order for me to be saved. Amen? So, this salvation, which is an absolute rescue from an eternal death and separation from God, experienced in an eternal hell where God's word tells us there is unquenchable weeping and gnashing of teeth, is obtained the same way for the Jew and for the Gentile, and rescues us from the same thing for the Jew and for the Gentile. Our faith is common. Our salvation is common. Not only is the salvation common to all who have it, but it also, it's also critical for all those who have it because without it, the consequences are dire and eternal. So now that we know what Jude means by it being common and we know how important it is, we now must consider why Jude changes the direction of his letter from discussing this wonderful common 
highly consequential salvation to appealing to these believers to contend. To the Greek word is agonizomai. Uh, it's where we get to agonize. Uh, and what he's telling us to do is to, to contend, to wrestle agonizingly for this faith. The reason for contending is twofold, because the end game is so highly consequential and because those who are attacking the truth with untruth will not stop on their own as they are driven to do what they do out of selfish impulse. They're not going to have, most likely, a stroke of conscience and change what they do. Why did Jude change from writing about the joyous and encouraging topic of justification by grace through faith to then writing about something more urgent? Because in verse 4, we're told, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's your antinomians. Jude identifies certain people who have crept in to the assembly. The Greek term used here means to slide down next to, undetected. They have done so undetected and are now promoting a very dangerous and false gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile. The gospel Paul preaches saves the gospel these other guys preach is false because it doesn't save. The gospel Paul preaches involves Christ dying for payment for our sins. The gospel these other guys preach won't save because it doesn't include Christ, or at least Christ as defined by the scriptures. They may have Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. Now, how do we know uh, that they are among us? Well, there's a whole list of times that God mentions it in the scriptures, I have a few of them, but just to make my case that this isn't a uh, remote situation, that this is common too. Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like us, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Romans 16, 17, 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive their hearts of the naive. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Once again, they look like us. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end, though, will correspond to their deeds. Galatians 1, 6-9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Ephesians 5.11 
take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's a command given to us. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. <laughs> not a truer thing has been said that's more relevant to our generation. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false uh, teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves with swift destruction. Finally, 1 John 4.1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world and creep in among us. So, how do these guys creep in unnoticed? They're there among them. Uh, Jude is addressing the believers, and he's telling the believers, they're with you. I might not even know who they are, but they're there. They're there among them, and they are obviously doing something that Jude is aware of that is absolutely detrimental and worth giving a lot of urgent attention to. Who are they, and what are they teaching that is so dangerous? Well, first of all, the way they have crept in is that they claim to be believers. They sound like believers, and they look like believers. But how are they able to be so good at it? One reason they're so skilled at it uh, and going undetected is because they are unsaved and thus unchanged by God's Holy Spirit. They do not have a conscience that convicts them of their lying and deception. You'd be able to detect me right away if I lied to you because I can't do it, okay? I might be able to do it quickly, but then you'll tell right afterwards I'm lying to you. They have no internal restraint to keep them from doing mean things so often to uh, helpless people. They don't care. I sometimes listen to, and I, I wouldn't encourage this, uh, but I do sometimes listen to or watch false teachers on TV. Uh, and the foolishness in their behavior and in their message never ceases to amaze me. I must remember, though, that they have a conscience that has been seared, and the greed with which they preach such things is unrestrained. There's nothing holding them back. The other reason they go unchecked is because believers are so poorly educated in biblical doctrine. And that's why we do what we do here. They're unable to discern truth because they don't know from God's word what is or is not actually true. Now, we are not informed as to what this particular group to whom Jude was referring, was doing or teaching. We don't know the specifics. We do know, however, that they were somehow perverting the grace of God into sensuality, and they were denying their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
How many of you have ever heard a TV preacher say something to the effect of, send in your $1,000 love gift and you'll receive it back from God sevenfold? Anybody ever heard that? It's a bunch of garbage. Whenever you see such gross deviations from God's word, you can count on it that no one, or that the one who has deviated to that degree has done so in order to protect and provide for their own sin. This is done out of their own pleasure. And they don't care who they take advantage of, who they harm, they don't care who they bankrupt to do it. For years I worked with a college ministry, as I told you before, I regularly saw college students get involved with the ministry, become very active in Bible study and evangelism, and then suddenly just tank. It's like someone flipped a switch and overnight they became sarcastic and contentious over spiritual things, arguing with everyone and slandering God's word. For the longest time, I would confront them on that, and I would try to have a conversation with them as to why they're thinking the way that they're thinking and try to answer every question that they have. I finally figured out that they don't want answers. I eventually stopped responding to their hostile questioning and condescending comments because of a pattern that I saw, and my response to them eventually became, who are you sleeping with? Rarely was it anything else. Rarely was it anything else that caused their departure from the faith. They found a particular sin that they enjoyed more than they enjoyed their walk with the Lord and were willing to sacrifice everything as well as wreck anyone's faith in order to hang on to it. The individuals of Jude's day took God's grace, his offer of generous forgiveness, and took it to an extreme mistakenly rejoicing that they could enjoy their sin and have their salvation too. Again, the antinomians. They argued that God's grace permitted them to lead immoral lives. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? Paul's response was, may it never be. This only comes, though, from a gross misunderstanding of God's word. Someone who is authentically saved will develop God's passion for holiness and God's hatred for sin because they now have the mind of God through his Holy Spirit that now resides in every believer. The individual who does not see their life change over time and become more Christ-like needs to wonder and be concerned if they were ever saved to begin with. If I have consumed the medicine, I should see healing. Writing in Romans 6, 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul reminds or responds to those who think God's grace allows them to keep on sinning. He rhetorically asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is dramatic, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The Apostle Peter also contradicts the false teaching that grace permits immoral living when he writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We must all remember that according to Galatians 5, in every believer the flesh, or the senses, war against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. One of these is going to win out. It depends on which one you feed more. If you sense a disdain for God's word welling up inside of you, or you develop a desire to follow someone that you know or you've been warned against, you need to ask yourself immediately, what is the sin that I'm trying to protect? 
Maybe it is sensuality, uh, like these guys. Maybe it's something else, like a form of drunkenness or drug abuse. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's pride. For all of us, we must be alert to false teachers and false teachings. We will see them in Christian bookstores. We will see them on Sunday morning TV. They abound on the internet. We will even see them in our churches. The only way to detect them, though, is to know God's word. In our passage this morning, the charge is given to all believers to contend for the faith. That's you. That's me. We must agonizomai. We need to wrestle aggressively. To do so is not unloving, and we can know this because in the same breath, Jude wants mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to us. So as mercy, peace, and love are multiplied to us, we take that into the fight. Contrary to the message our world gives us, really in order to silence us, disagreeing with someone does not make you a hater. It just means you disagree. It is often the most merciful, gracious, and loving thing you can do if it turns them from a belief system that will destroy them. If my neighbor's house is on fire and flames are shooting out of the windows, for me to go in there at 2 a.m. in the morning and yank him out of bed is not unloving. Amen? So, how we do it must be Christ-like. That we do it is not optional. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes it possible to do these things that we are often unskilled to do or fearful to do. Lord, we do pray that you would do whatever you need to do in order to help us understand your word more and to commit it to memory. Lord, change us by it. Make us more Christ-like by it. And Lord, help us to be bold and defenders of the truth and of the church and of our families by properly understanding and wielding your word. Lord, here we are. Send us, uh, send us out to change our world for the gospel. And again, we thank you that you have called us to such a great calling in Christ's name. Amen.